it is like a bad marriage. <laughs> we are close enough to each other that you can really yeah. not live without each other, right? Yeah. They're back and forth, but it is mutually abusive. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, Fidel figured out that by painting the U.S. as the enemy and claiming that the U.S. imperialists were always on the verge of taking over or attempting to take over, it gave him cover for all of the failings of the revolution. Hello, and welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. What is it about Cuba? An island of only 12 million people, 90 miles from Florida, has the ability to draw in American policymakers, American thinkers, and American culture. Our huge country of 300 million people, in many ways, still thinking about looking at Cuba 60 years after Castro took power and revolution. I know personally, my trip down there three years ago still has a hold on me. Cuba still has its teeth sunk into me somehow. It, it draws you in. Just the rhythm of life and the way of thinking about it really draws in people. And I can see the attraction. Anthony De Palma has written a book called The Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. We were lucky to have him come on the podcast this week. His book follows five people from Wanabacoa, a suburb just outside of Havana, since the revolution to today. They're ordinary people. Nothing about them is about high-level policymaking. But I think understanding these ordinary people and their ordinary lives is the only way forward for American policy as we think about what's next for Cuba, for the embargo, and all the rest. I do think that we need to figure out ways to get free speech, economic prosperity, security, growth, and a more open and democratic government into Havana. I think that the best way, and ASP thinks that the best way, is through engagement, through trade, through travel. You know, the best way forward for most countries in the world is to expose them to America, not to wall them off from America. If you wall them off from America, you wall them off from American values. Great nations trade, great, great nations engage, great nations shouldn't fear other, other nations, shouldn't wall them off from, from America. Instead, we should engage across the Straits of Florida and figure out a way forward. I hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, Anthony De Palma. I hope you go read his book afterwards. I loved it. Now let's get to the conversation. Anthony De Palma, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. So your experience and, and understanding of what it means to be Cuban really comes through in your new book, The Cubans. And, and your book is about the Cuban people, five you've chosen in particular from Wanabacoa, which is basically a suburb of Havana. It's a great book, but I want to talk through what, what their lives mean for American policy. What do you think the adaptability that these people have showed throughout their lives means for, for American policy and American bilateral relationship with the Havana government? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Andrew. And it's one that I guess during the whole process of writing the book, uh, I turned over and over and over again in my mind. It was something that I knew. Of course, anyone who's been to Miami knows about the 
incredible adaptability and inventiveness of the Cuban community that has basically remade that city in the half century that they've been there since they uh, went into exile. But it was, it was actually one afternoon in Havana while I was researching the book and a friend, a historian invited me to the uh, Father Felix Varela Center in Havana. It's an organization run by the Catholic Church with permission to sort of hold these basically discussions, academic discussions in uh, this old seminary in Havana, as long as they don't cross the line. And the line is, you know, not fomenting uh, regime change. Mm -hmm. So the discussion that day was the kind of academic topic you'd find in any university. Can Cubans be happy? That was the, that was the topic. Okay. Far away from uh, any threat to Fidel or Raul or, or yeah. anyone else. And this, was, this was in 2018, so Fidel was already uh, entombed and Raul was in charge. Yeah. Uh, and during the course of the, the uh, presentation, there were uh, psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists, all Cubans. And uh, I was the only foreigner in there. And they, one of the psychologists said something that struck me cold that moment because I had never really thought of it in the same way. And he said that that adaptability that we're talking about here is at the same moment, the Cubans' greatest strength and their curse. And he proceeded to describe what he meant. And that's the, the nut of this thought that I've been mulling over since. We're talking about people who I've seen convert a plastic soda bottle mm-hmm into a gasoline tank for a motorcycle. Right. All right. Uh, without even thinking about it. There are people who have found ways to convert plantains and even the skin of plantains mm-hmm. into edible food when the need arises. They have adapted to uh, all kinds of conditions. And if you go there today, 2020, you're, they always talk about Cuba being stuck in time and where time doesn't change because of the 1950s cars. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the least of it because they're living without vacuum cleaners, without billboards, without coupons. Uh, some of it is good, right? Because they don't have robocalls on their telephone. In fact, most of the time, telephone doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, but they really are living without a lot, even though they are so close to the largest market in the world. Yeah. At the same time, though, because they're so adaptable, uh, I guess the cruel way of looking at it would be to say that they become complacent. Mm. But I think the more sophisticated way of looking at it is to say that they have been left with so little after 60 years of an interminable revolution that mm. they're reluctant to do anything that might put at risk the little that they have. So they ex- accept what they have. So they become adaptable to whatever conditions and accept it. Yeah, and How does for, that affect Washington? I'm yeah. sorry. I was going to say, and, and for an American policy that yes. uh, very specifically is targeted towards regime change, towards this idea that if we make things bad enough, implicitly, if not explicitly, if we make things bad enough, the people will rise up and overthrow this government. And that, that just seems completely beyond any, any reasonable expectation. Well, if you, if you look at it through that lens of it being their greatest strength and their gravest uh, shortcoming, mm-hmm. uh, it can never work. 
Now, Wanabakoa is interesting, and I chose it for many reasons, but one is that it played a central part in the one moment in this long, sordid history of the relations in the two countries, the one moment where that policy seemed to come closest to being uh, effective. Mm -hmm. And that was in uh, the summer of 1994, right. during the, the very nadir of the what so-called special period, which wasn't special at all, but which really tested their adaptability yeah. and they got through it. But before they got through it, there was a moment at which from Wanabakoa, 68 people got together in desperation, basically hijacked an old tugboat with the intention of bringing the men, women, and children, including infants, mm -hmm. to the United States on this tugboat. And they, they uh, were able to sneak out of the harbor at three o'clock on a Wednesday morning in July, made it to seven miles off the coast when they were pursued by three other more modern steel hull tugboats sent out, we assume, and there is evidence to suggest that it was by order of the Cuban government, of course, because nothing happens except... Uh, a hijacking without approval by the Cuban government. And in attempting to stop the boat, they rammed it and sank it. That led to a series of hijackings of the little ferry that crosses from Wanabacoa to Havana, which led to rumors that there were boats coming from Miami to pick up people who wanted to leave, which then led to what's called the Maliconazo, which was mm -hmm. thousands of angry Cubans massing together on the Malecon, the seaside uh, boulevard, and shouting what had never been shouted in public before, down with Fidel, down with Fidel, and freedom. So right. that seemed to me to be the end result of the policy, right? That's what we were looking for. Right. And what happened? Eventually, Fidel showed up. The police who were in, were not in uniform, but had calmed things down by cracking a couple of heads, and all of a sudden, people dispersed. Oh, there are lots of reasons why that happened, but it happened. And from that moment on, you never got close to that kind of uprising. So what's the policy? Our policy is to either have the new president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, right. step down uh, or decide to hold elections or do any of those things, which he has given no indication that he's going to do, right. or that the people like Caridad, and Arturo and the others who are in the book, who live normal lives in Cuba, are gonna be so incensed and so angry that they're going to rise up and demand change. Against the backdrop of what we know for 60 years, Just doesn't uh, it, seem. it's almost impossible to figure out how that could happen. And this, this is really a hinge point in your book and I think is, is really important to, to kind of dig, dig into a little bit more. And one of the key parts is this idea or, or the truth that, that Fidel showed up, that Castro is, saw that this was a threat and showed up at the protests. I think that's a really interesting thing that, that talks to the, the uniqueness of the Cuban re revolution, kind of this personalization of it. I mean, could you imagine in any of the Eastern European revolutions, if the president or, you know, uh, head of, of the Communist Party had showed up in, you know, Hungary or East Germany or, or anything like that, how that would have gone. And, and so 
kind of the, the unique nature, this personalized nature of Fidel's revolution and how that, that was such a key part for every Cuban. You know, Fidel was almost like family member for better or for worse, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and of course, I want to talk a little bit about Fidel too, because you wrote this really interesting, long obituary of him for the New York Times when he died in, in 2016. And I think you, you wrote too that you got, you got pushback from both sides, which sometimes says you're doing the right thing, right? But he's such an important character and remains so. And I, I wonder if you could tell, uh, talk a little bit more about how Fidel still kind of hovers over everything in, in Cuba. Sure, sure. You know, I, I just finished writing an essay uh, about Fidel's aversion to having statues of himself. And it was timely because we now have this review here in the United States about statues, statues. And which ones should be there and which ones should be taken down. And it's interesting that there is not a single statue of Fidel in all of Cuba. No kidding. Not one. Huh. Not one. And when he died, within a few days after his death, the National Assembly passed a law prohibiting forever into the future any statue, memorial, or renaming any street or boulevard after Fidel. He wow. claimed not to want to promote any cult of personality. But, Andrew, what, what more would he need? He was ever-present. Right. Even today, even in Miami, no one needs to mention the name Fidel. All you need to do is sort of stroke this imaginary beard, okay. and that's referring to him. Right. Now we see, well, two things. One, if there were an uprising like 1994, it's hard to imagine that even Raul, let alone Diaz-Canel, the president, the civilian right. president, could come out and have anywhere near any kind of control over a crowd, if it ever got that far, which I don't think it would after they've been through 1994, the screws would have to be tightened so much that it's hard to even conceive. And the screws are being tightened right, right now, believe me. The, the yeah. economy in Cuba is well on its knees and it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. But Fidel's image, even in death, is sort of just his name alone has become a tripwire, even here in the United States. Yeah. So all you have to do if you are a candidate like Bernie Sanders or a potential vice presidential nominee like Karen Bass, all you have to do is mention the name Fidel in anything resembling a positive light, and you suffer the wrath of the anti-Castro, anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-democrat wing of, of the party. So Fidel, what I wrote in that, in that obituary that ran in 2016 was that Fidel had bedeviled 10 U.S. presidents. Yeah. Well, he's now on the point, even though he's ashes in a tomb in, in Santiago de Cuba, of bedeviling another president and becoming an actor in another U.S. election. Yeah, Quite that's right. <laughs> Quite impressive for, you know, someone four years in the grave to, to have that impact. And it is really surprising how Cuba is such a big player in U.S. politics. You know, this is a, a relative, it's the largest island in the Caribbean, but it's still, it's 12 million people. And 
this is not a, a major geopolitical hinge point or anything like that, but it's become this, this center point for American policy, for all of Latin America. And, and part of that was, was, of course, Fidel's push you know, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s. But it's also been an American focus as well. It, it takes two to play that game. It, it really strikes me that there is something in the American mindset that, that we get so focused on Cuba. There's a, there's a personalization of it as well. You know, it, it is like a bad marriage. <laughs> we are close enough to each other that you can really yeah. not live without each other, right? Yeah. They're back and forth but it is mutually abusive. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, Fidel figured out that by painting the US as the enemy and claiming that the US imperialists were always on the verge of taking over or attempting to take over, it gave him cover for all of the failings of the revolution. And believe me, from the beginning, in 1959, Cuba was only 6 million people. And a lot of its most uh, highly qualified people had left. Mm -hmm. So there was no way that a little country like that is going to be independent. They just simply traded one power for right. another. And in, into the future, it, it just doesn't have a market large enough to be independent. So they're always going to be dependent on something. Till today, I, I had the opportunity to go into the offices of Granma which is the daily newspaper of the Communist Party, the principal source of news in the country. News, right. if you want to call it right. that. It's basically propaganda for the party. And talking journalist to journalist, I'd asked the journalists there, you know, how they feel about sort of taking orders from the party and writing the kinds of things that they knew they were writing that weren't really journalism, but propaganda. And they said, well, we do it because anything that criticizes the government, helps the enemy, and we are at war. And this, was, still. this was two, three years ago. On the other hand, Washington likes to take advantage of Cuba and use it as sort of a bogeyman. Mm -hmm. And we see that now maybe more than we have for, for several administrations. If you want to talk about socialism, just look at what Cuba has become. And you can use it to symbolize all of the bad things that might come with anything that you can paint as socialism, any kind of progressive policy. Now, it, it does mean no, it gives me no joy to in any way speak about what's going on in Cuba in a positive light. Right. But there are things that they have done that given the, the circumstances are okay, right? Uh, right now, they have corona basically under control. We don't know exactly the figures because I never trust any figures from the government. Right. But I, I talk to people down there. And while they have, you know, they have quarantine and there are shortages like we have had, <clears throat> they basically got it under control. And that's easy to believe because their health system, with all of its failings, and I, I document them in the book, they do have that neighborhood watch system so that everybody has access at least to what they call a consultorio, which is basically a doctor's office without any medicine or any equipment in it. But you can go to the doctor and say, look, I feel I've got this problem and he right. or she can decide whether to push you on. It's a model that they're using 
in some of the medical schools in the United States and around the world. I mean, it only makes sense. It's basically yeah. maintenance, preventative maintenance, instead of dealing with emergencies after they come up. That said, you can almost, you, you couldn't even say that. You couldn't say that without uh, raising the ire of those uh, anti-Castro, anti all those other people who use it as uh, a point of attack. Exactly. And, and what's frustrating to us is that we had seen the Obama administration as they, as they pushed the opening. They, there were some polls committed in, in 2016 and, and even in 2017 that, that showed that that hardline, old line, Miami, Cuban population was aging out and that there was a, a majority even of Cuban-Americans who were willing to brace opening, look towards the next stage, but maybe they weren't as vocal because Cuba is not their first priority. Mm. But for the very rabid anti-Castro, anti-Cuban regime people, embargo is their number one priority, the thing they make the most noise about, the thing they vote on. And it's difficult to face up against that, that sort of concerted pushback. You know, sure. it's, it's one of the few places where American foreign policy is more a domestic policy issue. It's Absolutely. more of a voting issue, it, right. li like Israel or something like that. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, even President Obama didn't undertake the uh, opening until the latter half of his second term, yes, exactly. when electoral politics no longer mattered to him. So um, it, 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 it becomes more of a challenge for yes. Biden if he ends up being the candidate because he's not in his the middle half of the second term but has to have those votes in Florida so there are already people saying that if he were to pick Karen Bass he would basically be surrendering Florida it's really interesting that 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 still is is the case and really interesting and, and involved in this imagine we're talking about the Eisenhower administration <laughs> that started right. this <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the, it's, it is amazing. When was the last time you were in Cuba? In February of this year. So, so before coronavirus, and we can all see and look at kind of the economic numbers, and, and you're right that the Cuban economy is going in the wrong direction, entering into recession. Part of this is American policy. Part of it is Venezuela's fall and all that sort of stuff as well. Well, what the most recent step that they've taken, because of course, the airports, uh, I haven't been back because I haven't been able to go back. The country was closed, yeah. which means that all of the resorts were closed mm -hmm. and the hotels in, in Havana were closed. So that is the source, uh, the main source of foreign currency, hard currency. Yeah. hard currency. Then on top of that, the administration cuts back on the amount of uh, remittances that can be sent. So mm -hmm. there's very little hard cash in Cuba. What they did just within the last month was to take the hated step, again, which this echoes the 1990s during the special period, mm -hmm. of allowing the US dollar, the hated US dollar, to actually become acceptable currency with a whole lot of manipulation. And the Cubans don't call it the US dollar. <laughs> They're very good on euphemisms, like special right. period was anything but special. This <laughs> is moneda libremente convertible. Uh, easily converted currency, right. uh, which technically covers euros, but it's basically the dollar. And so now, all of a sudden, Cubans who have been without soap, detergent, 
toothpaste and toilet paper since February, now find they can go to a store and have all of those things. If, first of all, they've gone into their bedroom, pulled up the mattress, pulled out those crinkly old US dollars that they had, bring them to the bank, convert them at the bank into a plastic sort of a credit card and take that to these stores that uh, will accept them. And all of a sudden, the things that were unavailable in the stores that accepted Cuban currency for the last five months are available. Why? Because the government is trying to suck out. It's like they're holding up the Cubans upside down and waiting for the money to fall out of their pocket so that they can have a hoard of dollars that they need to, uh, to keep the, the government going, to keep the army going, and uh, keep everything from coming apart until they can reopen. Right. I mean, it, it, it is shocking to kind of look at the numbers. Cuba, it, this island in the Caribbean, which should be able to you know, feed itself, grow its own money, it, they import 80% of their food, you know, import huge amounts of, of energy just to be able to, to keep running and keep going. And they, they, of course, first had the Soviet Union as, as their patron and then went through the special period. And then the Venezuelans came along and that, that was their patron. And, and I do think, and, and when we went down there in 2017, it was pretty clear that the message had gone through, at least to the people we met in the Cuban government, that they saw moving towards the United States and tourists from the United States as their new patron, their new way to, to get that hard currency. And now that's been taken away you know, by, by American policy and, and by the coronavirus and everything. So it, it is going to be a difficult time and a difficult way forward. You know, one of the things we like to do on, on these podcasts is to talk about not what's in the headlines today, but what's gonna be in the headlines in the future five, 10 years from now. Where, where is everything going? What is the way forward here for the bilateral relationship? And, and especially though, for the people of Cuba, the people you write about, people who have been making do, getting by, adapting, making do for decades. Usually the, the best thing, best prediction is just to say that it's going to continue, that they're gonna con- be able to continue to, to make do and, and get by. Is there a hinge point coming up? Is there a, a, a time where things are going to change? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, first off, uh, to quote Margaret Thatcher, Cuba has run out of other people's money. So, <laughs> right. so there's, uh, it used to be that, you know, with Fidel in charge, any country, Uruguay, you know, uh, Italy, would be glad to send money to Cuba to support them because in a way they were standing up to the United States, which is what everybody would like to do. And here's little Cuba is standing up to the United States. And so Uruguay can send money to start a school somewhere and feel good about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's happening less and less. Fidel's not there. You know, the big dogmatic ideologue is no longer there. So Raul doesn't cut the same kind of figure and certainly Miguel Diaz-Canel doesn't either. So that's sort of gone by the way. Cuba's lost a lot of its international charisma that allowed it to get that support from uh, other countries. As a result, they are gonna really have to make do. And Diaz-Canel, who didn't fight in the mountains but is surrounded by old men, and I mean, old. One of the vice presidents is 90 years old. And uh, Raul and uh, Machado, who are both nearing 90, are members of the National Assembly. 
So he's operating with a much different worldview, but with those guys right on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. Now, Raul has said that, and he's set things up this way in the transition from, you know, he left office as president in 2018, stated clearly that he was going to step down as head of the party, which is where the real power is, next year in 2021. Mm -hmm. Uh, They set term limits for the president and age limits. Uh, He made it clear that his intention is that Diaz-Canel would then take over as party leader and for a short time would control both posts, but they would be staggered positions so that eventually he'd be out of the presidency after 10 years and someone else. So you're looking at a point where politically Raul uh, Raul will be stepping away and he's done a lot of that anyway. He's old, he's tired. I think he doesn't wanna give up the whole system that, that he helped create, but mm-hmm. he realizes there need to be changed. So he's sort of leaving Diaz-Canel to do some of it, but not enough to anger the old guard that eventually both politically and biologically will disappear. So let's mm-hmm. say five years from now, five years from now, they may, none of them may be around. Right. So Diaz-Canel would still be president and would be head of the party, but without that anchor holding him back, what is he likely to do? Well, he's no Gorbachev, but mm-hmm. remember 1994, I don't think he wants to be in a position where there are people on the Malecon in Havana right. shouting down with Diaz-Canel and freedom knowing that if he showed up, instead of calming things, he'd likely to be dragged off and thrown into the water. Right. So I think he's going to need to be more careful. Right now, he's not doing anything because there's no reason why a Cuban official would want to negotiate with the Trump administration no. now. Yeah. So I think they're sort of biding their time as they did in 2016 assuming then that Hillary was going to be elected president and that they'd be able to negotiate with her, knowing that, knowing her tendencies and that they'd have time and they could work things out. They also didn't give anything up, but they didn't give up much at that time, thinking that they'd have this long period to negotiate. Right. Right now, they're not going to negotiate with Washington. There's a chain, you know, they're watching, they watch very carefully to see what's happening. I think they're, they're hoping that next year they would be able to negotiate with a Biden administration, which has already stated that it intends to go back to a lot of the things that happened during the Obama administration. And that would allow, that would give them some, uh, that would throw them a life preserver. If the restriction against American tourists was lifted, all of a sudden their economic forecast would be quite different. Right. You'd have the cruise ships, you'd have the hotels full, you'd have Americans spending money, and you'd have Cubans who are uh, suffering right now, who invested money in their own businesses, uh, may be able to, uh, to get ahead. Now, they don't want rich people in Cuba. The administration still doesn't want rich people. Uh, so don't get the idea that they, they've opened the economy. Yeah. Uh, you can get a license to become a mattress repairer, but that's not <laughs> going to get you very far. They have no licenses for professionals. So if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you still can't work on your own. 
You can repair spark plugs and clean them, uh, or you can run a little kitty ride with goats, but you can't do anything that's really going to make you money. But my guess, and maybe it's a little wishful thinking, uh, is that eventually that that has to change. Yeah. The, the state-controlled economy just is not working. And right. they are sitting on, they're, sit, they're holding down their greatest resource, which is the Cuban people themselves. Yeah. We saw in Miami and in Union City and in other places where Cubans landed, and we know from their adaptability that we started talking about, that they can make do with almost anything. Yeah. One of my guys in the story repairs furniture without supplies he goes out on the highway looks for old tires brings them back and then strips them into one inch strips so he can get the rubber that he uses to to build the support for like that chair that's behind you yeah uh, it's incredible that they can do now imagine what he could do if all he had to do was go to the home depot yeah and, buy and pick rubber. it up yeah so yeah. i think uh you know eventually the economy has only that way to go. And with the end of the men from the mountain, Raul already has his tomb set up somewhere yeah. with his name on it. And it's just a matter of time. A lot of it will depend on what they are able to get from Washington. Yeah, we, we think, you know, one of the best ways to, to get things moving in, in the right direction is giving more showing more Americans there and, and getting Cubans to meet more Americans to see there's no better way to, to build sort of that entrepreneurialism by bringing Americans down there, letting them meet people to people and, and build a, a better relationship in that way. And I think the the way to change things is not by having the same policies for the last 60 years, but move forward with, with new policies and, and try engagement instead of isolation. You know, what would it take to change the mindset of those reporters at Granma so that they are no longer willing to toe the line because they feel that they are at war? Right. So how do you change that? I think it's certainly devil's advocate. It didn't change during the two years that the Obama opening was in effect. But I think right. it was maybe unrealistic to expect that that would change, especially since for the previous 55 years, the hard line hadn't changed them. And right. the three and a half years since then, where we've reverted to the hard line, hasn't changed them either. Right. So why would we have expected there to be change in that period of time? Well, there was some change. Uh, there were businesses and, you mm -hmm. know, as you, We've seen it in Mexico and in, uh, in Brazil and in other Latin countries. As a middle class begins to grow, their demands for representation and uh, accountability grow commensurately. Exactly. So right. as you started getting some Cubans who, even with all the restrictions, opened a little shop, and had revenues coming in, they expected to see the streets cleaned. Mm -hmm. Even if they, you know, you have this sort of communal ownership, which allowed everything to sort of go to hell down there because nobody owned anything, so right. why would you worry? But once you have a shop, right, and you want people to come in, you need the electricity to be running all the time. Yeah. You need the street outside to be clean. You need the buses to run so that your employees can get to work and that's so your customers can get to work. All of a sudden, you know, you started seeing a little bit of that, that process that I watched happen in, in Mexico after they, they started 
after their economy started growing and a middle class began to form and they had a civic alliance that demanded accountability. Yeah. So it won't happen overnight, but I think if you put that together with a change in the regime, biologically enforced, but a change nonetheless, yeah. you know, the, the possibility that you could use the adaptability of the Cubans in a different way, instead of trying to get them to demand change, get them to change from the bottom up and demand accountability, which eventually would lead to some system that would give them greater access to, to power. They have elections that don't really work. They're selections on the right, national. Right. <laughs> but on the local level, it's it sort of, it always reminds me of uh, some New England town hall. You know, they get together and somebody proposes a candidate and somebody else supports that candidate. And then they, they, uh, they have to have at least two in the local level and one wins. They become like ward leaders. They don't have any real power, but they become the person that you go to. Yeah. Uh, so it's there. After that, it becomes more of a selection process. But they have, you know, the basic workings of something that give them a sense yeah. of what they had before the revolution in the 1940 Constitution yeah. of representative government. Yeah. Well, a note of optimism to uh, to finish up on. Tony De Palma, where can people find more about the book and about you? Right. My, uh, the website uh, is uh, anthonydepalma.com. Pretty simple. You can get the book there, bio and some, uh, some past articles. Yeah. Or, yeah. or Google my name. It's a great book. I, I loved reading it. And, and thank you for doing this, uh, this podcast with us. Anytime. <laughs>